Friends, let's open in our Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. Leviticus 16, Evan read for us our sermon passage this morning, but I want to add two verses to the end of that reading, verses 29 and 30. So I'm in Leviticus 16, beginning in verse 29. And it shall be a statute to you forever that in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves and shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. Let's pray together. That is the human question. Something is wrong with me. Something is deeply wrong with me. I don't think what I want to think. I don't do what I want to do. I don't treat other people as I ought to treat them. And you call it sin. And I long to know how I might be cleansed from this sin that hangs so tightly around me. Lord, I pray that you would open eyes and ears and hearts, whether we're not believers yet and we're exploring Christianity or we've been born again and we're in this faith and still haven't wrapped our minds around the glory of the gospel, that you provide a way that we might be clean from our sins. What great news that would be. Teach us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Well, last week we saw a thunderous, a holy, a perfect God on top of Mount Sinai and a rebellious calf-worshiping people at the bottom. And that tension begged the question we've been asking since Adam and Eve first rebelled against God, how is a holy God going to dwell amidst an unholy people? How can you possibly bring those two together? If a man married a woman and she cheated on him repeatedly, what man in his right mind would stay? If God wed himself to a people and they turned away from him repeatedly, what God in his right mind would stay. Why would God put up with that? And we said that God's temporary answer to that question was tabernacle. For God so loved the world, he tabernacled among us. He moves down off the mountain. He has a tent prepared for himself and he lives in the midst of his people proving that he will not leave us and he will not forsake us. The people he delivers from slavery are the people that he commits his presence to. But truth be told, tabernacle is only half the answer to that question. And this great word atonement is the other half of the answer to this question. Tabernacle means that God brings his presence near to us. But atonement, which comes from the Hebrew word to cover, is God's covering of sin through sacrifice. If tabernacle is Jesus' incarnation, then atonement is Jesus' crucifixion. You don't want the one without the other. 
You bring God's glorious, holy presence into our midst without atonement, and that is not good news, that is terrifying news, because we are exposed for who we are. But it is great and glorious news if God brings his presence near in the tabernacle, and then he covers our sin in the atonement. Paul writes a letter to one of his church plants, Corinth, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, and he says to them, For I delivered to you what was of first importance. I spent almost as much time with you, Corinth, as any other church plant that I was a part of, and I got right to the point. I didn't beat around the bush. I talked about the most important thing, the thing of utmost importance, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, when Paul says Scriptures, he means our Old Testament. He didn't have a New Testament. So he's saying to this church, when I planted you, I talked about the most important thing, and that is we opened up our Old Testaments, and I proved to you that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That's what we're going to do this morning. We are in our Old Testaments, and we are hearing the thing of first importance, and we're going to see it in Leviticus, and then we're going to see it shine most brightly in the person of Jesus. So let's start by talking about the Day of Atonement. Exodus ends with um, instructions. Israelites have built the tabernacle. God's presence comes and it descends and it's glorious and it's there on the tabernacle. And then the book of Leviticus is a 27-chapter explanation of now what? (laughs) Okay, he's here. He's in our midst, he's at the center of our dwelling, he's holy, he's unapproachable. Now what do you want us to do? What do we do with God in our presence? And so Leviticus begins to teach, this is how you ordain priests who are going to be your representatives at the tabernacle. These are the sacrifices you make and how you make them, and these are the feasts that you're going to celebrate in God's presence. But far and away, the big once-a-year event for Israel is the Day of Atonement. We know that's the big day because that is the only day that only the high priest can enter into the tabernacle and into that sacred place, the Holy of Holies. Once a year, at this time, on this day, for this specific purpose, and any other time, any other person enters the Holy of Holies, Leviticus 16.2 says that they die. Here's what happens on the Day of Atonement. It occurs in the Jewish calendar around September or October, so that's close to the time we're at now. Every Israelite takes the day off of work, and that's a way to prepare their hearts to humbly approach God in faith. Remember that there's plenty of places in the prophets that warn that God is not fooled by people going through the motions of worship with a cold heart. We might fool ourselves into thinking that God is fooled when we lip-sync worship with hearts that are far from him, But God looks straight past all of the ordained motions of worship and directly to our hearts. And he is seeking humble worshipers. 
the Israelites approach, and the day falls into three parts. And we're going to talk about each of them very briefly. Number one, they would cleanse the tabernacle. That's what we heard in verses 11 through 19. Now, why would you need to do that? Why would you need to to cleanse this tabernacle, this place of worship? And that's because all year unholy people worship God with half hearts and mixed motives and rote motions. Verse 16. Because of the uncleanliness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions and all their sins. Now remember that visual of the tabernacle. You've got the courtyard and then you've got the tent structure. You've got the holy place that the priest could go in daily and then you have the holy of holies and it's separated by a veil and the only thing in there is the Ark of the Covenant, that golden chest which contained the Ten Commandments. And this is the one time that the high priest can pass through that veil to that ark. And the lid of the ark has a beautiful name in the Old Testament. It's called the mercy seat. And God, of course, made the universe. What house could possibly contain him? But he says to the people of Israel, I will make the holy of holies the focal point of my presence on earth. This will be like my throne room and the ark will be like the footstool of my throne and we shall call it the mercy seat. And the high priest takes the blood from the bull and he sprinkles it on the ark as God's sign that it will be cleansed from unholy worship. Now, my wife asked a fantastic question that I hadn't thought about when I was studying this. And that is, we hear about the priest coming in every year into the Holy of Holies and sprinkling the ark with blood. Did anybody ever clean the ark? Like you've got blood upon blood upon blood. Um, Every flannel graph picture I've seen of the ark is this shiny, clean box of gold. Which one is it? You know, unless somebody comes in the day after the Day of Atonement with Windex, how is this thing clean? Well, I looked on a bunch of rabbi chat rooms this week. Those things exist. It's not in our passage, so I'm trusting oral tradition as comes to us through Google. And the consensus is that it was cleaned, but nobody knows how. The one way we suspect the ark could have been cleaned is when they took down the tabernacle and the tent and they moved to a new location. Remember, we're just wandering in the wilderness, what's going to be 40 years, and that could have been the time that the Levites cleaned the altar and they cleaned the ark of the covenant. But either way, you get into the book of Leviticus and you realize this is a very gory, bloody worship service. For 21st century Americans that don't butcher our own meat, this would have been a sight to behold. There would have been sounds and smells and a gore that we're not accustomed to. And our Bibles are reminding us what Hebrews 9.22 says in the New Testament, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That blood can be your blood if you are standing for your own sin. Or that blood can be a substitute's blood if a substitute stands in your stead. But there will be blood shed for sin. Number two, that's the first part of the day. The second part of the day has to do with this goat in verses 20 through 22. 
Now, this is powerful to me because in the first step, it's just the high priest and the holy of holies. So no one would have really seen what was happening. They just would have known from their Bibles what the high priest was doing. But this second step is in front of the entire congregation. The high priest, he brings this live goat. He lays both hands on it. And then in verse 21, and confesses over it all the iniquities of the people of Israel and all their transgressions and all their sins. There is something so moving about corporate confession. When adults and kids, when priests and lay people all admit together in front of each other that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's a powerful moment in the worship service. We do it every week. You do it here on the Day of Atonement. And I wonder what this sounded like. I wonder how long this went on as the priest held the goat and the congregation stood and kids got fidgety and how awkward and how specific the high priests got about his own sin and the corporate sin of the people of Israel, or what impact that had on little Israelites growing up, always knowing that their parents and their leaders were real sinners just like them. That's a powerful moment on a powerful day. And then after that happens in verse 22... The goat shall bear all their iniquities on itself to a remote area, and he shall let the goat go free into the wilderness. Symbolically, you're watching sin on this goat that wanders out, and it's preparing the people of Israel for the depth of Isaiah's prophecy, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There it goes. Is gone. And then step three, verses 25 through 28, it ends with burnt offerings for the priest and for the people. Imagine the relief for an Israelite on the day of atonement. God declares to them in verse 30 what we read, for on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. And you shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. You have atonement. You have a covering. You have a substitute. The penalty for your sin is poured out on that substitute and not on you. And you as the worshiper might now approach God's tabernacled presence among us with a clean conscience and a full heart. Once a year, you heard You are clean from all your sins. God says, I know you and I see your heart. I know about the calf and how you participated. I know about the grumbling. I know the secrets that you hold in your heart. I know things about you that your husband and your wife and your best friend don't even know about you. I know about this past year and how little you thought of me and lived for me. And I know how reluctant you were to take the day off of work and to even come to the day of atonement. And I tell you, even so, you shall be clean from all your sins. They are placed on this goat. 
They have wandered into the wilderness and you will never see them and we will never speak of them again. What sweet, glorious gospel news that an Israelite would hear year after year. How can a holy God dwell among an unholy people? He can take all initiative in himself and move off the mountain and into a tent to tabernacle among us and provide an atonement that will cover our sins so that we too might be holy. That's how God can do that. Now, Christian, whatever relief you feel this morning on behalf of your forefathers, the Israelites, on this day of atonement, you have more relief in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews, you can turn there if you want now. You can turn there this afternoon. You can dwell in this book all week. But the entire book of Hebrews in the New Testament is one big celebration about how the saving work of Jesus is so much better, sweeter, brighter, and more eternal than the foreshadowing of the saving work of Jesus in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 walk us through the Day of Atonement and the sacrificial system and remind us of how these things fell short of what God was truly trying to do. He's reminding of people who think the Day of Atonement is ultimate and forgetting that the Day of Atonement is to pointing to something else. He says, look, here's some problems. The tabernacle is a man-made tent, and it has, to be, have, it has to be cleaned every single year. But the sanctification we're talking about happens in the tent that dwells in heaven, of which the tabernacle is a poor shadow of that thing. In the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, only the priest could enter, and he could only do that once a year. These sacrifices, they had to be done repeatedly. No sooner did you hear those sweet words that you shall be clean than the next day happens and you begin thinking about your sin and the reminder that next year we're going to do the Day of Atonement to remind us that we have sinned yet again this year. And finally and most devastatingly, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The day of atonement was never made to be the day of true atonement. These were annual days that were signposts and reminders of the true coming atoning one. And the more you have Leviticus chapter 16 in your mind and the dynamics of this day, the more ready you're you're able to hear Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, which says, Therefore, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of of God. Did you catch all of that? Jesus is the high priest presiding over the house of God. Jesus is the tabernacle whose curtain of flesh was torn. Jesus himself is the atoning sacrifice whose blood was shed. 
the writer to the Hebrews, he sees all of those things and he goes on to make three applications in Hebrews 10, but I just want to close with the first one that he makes. He says, Christian, if this is true, if Jesus is priest and tabernacle and sacrifice, if he has fulfilled the day of atonement on the cross, if you have repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus alone for your salvation, the application is this. Draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Draw near to God with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Jesus said, it is finished. Why are we living like it's not? Jesus said, your sins are forgiven. Why are we worrying that they aren't? Jesus said, you are clean. Why are we acting like that couldn't possibly be? And all the while we approach the throne of grace reluctantly and sheepishly and wanting to prove our place at the table. And meanwhile, the writer to the Hebrews says, come, come with a true heart and come with full assurance of your faith. I've got a pop quiz for you. Two women come to worship and I want you to look at their hearts. You've got Sally who says it's been a rough week of besetting sin and a weak prayer life, and she sits in the back. She's too embarrassed to participate in worship for the hypocrisy of all of it. And then you've got Susie, who knows it's been a rough week of besetting sin and weak prayer, and she sits in the front, and she sings twice as loud for the marvel of it all. Which woman is proud And which woman is humble? Anybody who gets awkward around God because they think it's been an off week is in danger of that great besetting pride of thinking that there is such thing as an on week. Like there are weeks that I do the right thing and live the right way and participate in what God is calling me to do, and that's an on week of righteousness, and I come fully assured to the table of faith because I belong here. I read my Bible, and I said my prayers this week, and I did the dishes without anybody asking me to, and I helped somebody at work, and I didn't even get credit for it. And my iPhone says that my screen time is down 12% this week, And my blood pressure says that my anger problem is down 12% this week. And this is a good week. I can come to worship. I can come to the Lord's table. I can participate. I can even ask God for big things that I want for Christmas because I'm doing right by him. And I think he's going to do right by me. This is an on week and I'm ready to come and I'm ready to worship with assurance, which is another way of saying I am my own assurance. I deserve to be here. I brought myself here and I belong where I am. Christian, we are not our own assurance. We have one. 
We have one on an on week. We have one on an off week. He appears to us gloriously in Hebrews 10, 12 to 14. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Has perfected is past tense, Our being sanctified is present tense. For all time is future tense. The Lord Jesus is the God of grammar. He has atoned for us past, present, and future. He is our assurance forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Jesus, this is of first importance. That Christ died for sins according to the scriptures. We can fumble a lot of doctrines. We can disagree about a lot of side issues. But this one thing stands. That a holy God tabernacles among his people and atones for sin. You are the incarnation. You are the crucifixion. You are the resurrection and the life. All who come to you in repentance and faith will find a forgiveness and a covering for their sin. Be our assurance. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.